0: Um, we're a little bit behind this morning, but that's my fault. That's my fault, okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not blaming that on nobody but myself. Uh, I appreciate you every now and then giving me a couple extra minutes. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, and I also understand that you, we need to stretch a little bit. You know, being here, being here you know, two and a half, three hours is good to get the blood going. Get up and move around a little bit, so I'm glad we do that. that that's good, okay? All right. Um, I want to say a couple of things before we, before we get started all the way. You want to take a couple of notes about a, a couple of things I'm going to say. We're kind of moving out of direct statement, imp, uh, example, implication. But if you want a, a good example, we were talking a little bit about how God some kind, sometimes communicates and gives, gives instructions through implication, necessary inference, right? And it dawned on me that Jesus uses implication a lot in his teaching. He uses it a lot. So here's a good example to think about. Just something to think about. If you still kind of try and get your mind wrapped around that a little bit. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking with the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus with this question about this woman who's married to seven different brothers. this tied to Levirate. liverite marriage. is a question tied to that. And Jesus tells them something. He tells them they didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Remember that? So they didn't believe in a resurrection. They think they got a question that proves there's no resurrection. And Jesus argues from Exodus chapter three, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, a God of the living. Jesus doesn't go into a big explanation as to what that was all about. Instead, he lets them know that they missed the implication of that. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was implied in the language that not only did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continue to exist, but there will be a resurrection. So Jesus is exposing their error on the resurrection through implication. By letting them know in the books they highly regarded, which were the first five books of the Old Testament, God had endorsed and talked about a resurrection through the language given to Moses at the burning bush. They missed the implication of what God said to Moses. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still are still there. They're still alive. and It is implied that there will be a resurrection. So my point is, Jesus does that kind of stuff all through his ministry. He says to people things that they have to make an inference from. And the Old Testament does that. And the inference that is to be made from what God said to Moses at the burning bush is there will be a resurrection. So this is found all through the Bible. That's my point. That's the point I'm trying to make. I want you to go in your Bible down to Romans. I want you to go to Romans with me, okay? Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. It's a familiar verse. Familiar verse to us where the Apostle Paul, he writes and says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So for those of us who are members of the Lord's body, we're familiar with the second part of that verse. The churches of Christ. We say, hey, there it is. There there it is. We got scriptural language there about there were churches of Christ. In the first century and that's right I mean these were churches of Christ so the Bible says that but I want to suggest not only do we find you know some some good scripture some good Bible to let us be comfortable with put Church of Christ on the sign out there there's something else we need to notice from that text and it's the first part it's the part where Paul says salute one another with a holy kiss do not answer this out loud just Think about it to yourself. When is the last time you did that? And I'm being totally serious. All said, hey, do it. When's the last time you followed the example of the first century Christians and saluted each other with a kiss? When's the last time you kissed your brother or your sister in this place? If you haven't done that, why haven't you ever done that? Why are you okay with following the example of taking the Lord's Supper on Sunday, but you're not okay with that example? You're not okay with saluting each other with the holy kiss? What's the difference? Can you explain from the Bible what the difference is? From the Bible, not what you think, not what your opinion is, from the Bible. How can we determine which examples are binding in the Bible and which examples are not? That's what we want to talk about over the next couple of classes. Now that we've considered how God gives instructions through direct statements and approved examples and implication, and how God also gives us general authority and specific authority, we need to now talk a little bit about how we can know when an example is binding on us. How do we know when an example is binding upon us? That's what we're going to start talking about today, and Lord willing, we'll continue the discussion on Wednesday. For now, will you bow your heads with me? Let's have a prayer together, okay? Holy Father, Holy Father, thank you so much, our God, for blessing us to be together today to open up our Bibles, to study together, to learn, and to grow. I pray, Father, that you will bless this time of study, that you will help us have honest hearts, open hearts that are receptive to truth. I'm thankful, Father, for the men who lead this church, our elders. I pray that you will bless them, and we're so thankful for them. And I pray for their families and I pray for our young people and all the Bible class teachers. Bless us, Father, in Jesus' name and amen. So let's begin by reading some scripture. Will you read some scripture with me? I want to go to just three different places. We've read these verses before, but I want to just reread them because I think they go with our lesson. A couple of things in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, please. Young people, please go with me to 1 Corinthians 4, you especially. I think it's important that you turn to the verses so you can get familiar with your bible you need to see these things from the bible in 1 corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16 in 1 corinthians 4 and verse 16 the apostle paul says therefore i exhort you be imitators of me do you see that imitate me for this reason i've sent you timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the lord and he will remind you of my ways of the things I did when I was among you, which are in Christ. This is what I teach everywhere in every church. Put that with chapter 11. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 1. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, short verse but very powerful, Paul says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Be imitators of me. As I also imitate Christ. One more place. Go over a couple of more books in your New Testament to Philippians. This is an important verse here. Philippians chapter four and in verse number nine, Philippians four and verse nine, Paul says the things you have learned and received and heard. And here's the part for our lesson and seen in me. Practice these things. What you saw me do, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what are those verses saying to us there? Well, those verses are telling us this. They're simply telling us that we need to follow examples. We need to follow approved examples. Examples from the apostles. Now, I want to emphasize the word approved. That's a key word there because there are a lot of examples in the Bible that are even given by the apostles that are not approved, right? So let's look at a couple of examples of that. Peter denying Jesus three times. Should we follow that example? What about when the apostles are always arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And they're always saying, no, I'm number one. And somebody else says, no, I'm number one. No, I'm going to sit at this right. I'm going to sit at his left. Should we follow that example from the apostles? Unfortunately, a lot of Christians do. What about when Paul goes to Peter? These are two apostles, two equals here in the kingdom of God. And Paul sees Peter involved in hypocrisy. He's treating Gentiles one way when he's alone with them and another way when he's with the Jews. He's dividing the brethren, showing partiality. Should we follow Peter's example there? He's an apostle. The answer is obvious. No. We don't follow those examples. Those are not examples that glorify the Lord. Those are not examples that follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But what about this? What about eating the Lord's Supper in the upper room? The apostles did that. What about preaching the gospel by ship? The apostles did that. What about preaching till midnight? Man, that would be a good one. (laughs) I like that one. Let's do that one. The apostles did that. What about somebody dying in church? We got that going on in a worship assembly where an apostle is present. What about saluting each other with a holy kiss? We got an apostle saying, hey, that's what we do. Keep doing it. How can we be so sure that these are not approved examples? How can we be so sure that we should not be practicing these things in addition to taking the lowest supper on the first day of the week. Let's begin with a few observations here. I believe there are a few things that can help us determine when an example is binding and when it's not. And these, I want to emphasize, are common sense things. These again, and we'll look more at this on Wednesday, are things we use in our daily lives to bind examples on, on others, especially our kids. So these are things I just want you to think about. I just want you to think about these things for now. There are at least four things I think we got to consider when it comes to trying to figure out when an example is binding and when it's not. And the first thing is this. The first thing is we got to understand that God authorizes by approved examples. When there's something done in the New Testament, the question is, is that always binding? Now, I want to define my terms to you before I get into those four things. First, I want you to, I want you to think about this. Does every example both bind and limit? By bind, and young people, look at the definitions. By bind, we mean do we have to do it? Do we have to do it that way? The Christians met in the upper room. Do we have to do it that way? The Christians saluted each other with a holy kiss. Do we have to do it that way? Somebody died in a church service. Do we need to make sure we have that happen in every one of ours today? I know you think that sounds ridiculous, but if we are really going to be a New Testament church, we got to ask those kind of questions. By bind, we mean do we have to do it? By limit, we mean are we restricted to that we can't do it any other way? Can't do it any other way. Got to be in the upper room every single time. Got to be a holy kiss all the time. Got to be preaching the midnight every time. Does every example bind and limit? How can we determine what examples are binding or incidental? And by incidental, we mean that the example is insignificant to the main thing under consideration in the text. So those are questions we need to, we need to, we need to think about. I want to suggest this, that when it comes to things that are binding and limiting, There are four questions that that can help us with this. Four key factors. The first thing is you got to look at the example and you got to figure out, you got to ask yourself, does this example harmonize with the rest of the Bible? You got to do that when it comes to the Lord's Supper being eaten in the upper room. You got to do that when it comes to the apostles going to preach the gospel by ship. You got to do that when it comes to an apostle preaching till midnight or Christians saluting each other with a holy kiss. You have to figure out and determine if the example harmonizes with the rest of the Bible. And so go back to Matthew four. I talked about this last week. If you remember from our sermon last week, but I I think we need to look at it again, please. And Matthew, the fourth chapter, you got the devil coming to Jesus and he's trying to use some Bible. He's trying to use some scripture, and it's interesting how the devil knows the scripture. He's familiar with the word of God, and he, act, and he accurately quotes this scripture. Okay, he, he accurately quotes this scripture. some from Psalm 91, but he misapplies it. And that's the thing the Lord is going to point out. In verse number three, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus there is saying what you find in Psalm 119. The sum, the sum total of God's word is truth. you got to consider all of God's word. All the Bible comes from God. It must all be considered. Then the devil took him to, all, to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, now he's quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, said, on the other hand is, hey, what a, have you considered this verse also? On the other hand, it is also written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. What is Jesus doing there? He's saying, hey, Satan, you got to harmonize the Bible. You can't just go to one verse, take it out of context, make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You got to consider all of God's word. You are causing verses to conflict with each other. That's what the devil's doing. And and that's what we got to think about when it comes to this idea of examples, trying to figure out if they are binding. The Bible has to harmonize, brothers and sisters. You get you, you understand that you get that you agree with me. Right. The Bible has to harmonize. The Bible cannot conflict. The Bible cannot contradict. An example cannot be binding if it causes us to do something that will conflict with other verses. OK, an example can't be binding It's going to cause to do something that conflicts with another verse. we got to harmonize the scriptures if the Bible really comes from God. And I believe it does. Then the verses must be in perfect harmony. It's got to be in perfect harmony. But here's another question I want you to think about. Is the example the same in all cases? So after we ask the question of does this example harmonize? With the rest of the Bible, do what I find here harmonize what I see going on in all the other verses in the Bible? Now I want to know, is this example the same in all cases? Another way we could say that is, does this example, does it pass the rule of uniformity? My daughter goes to school and she wears a uniform every day. She has to look like everybody else. Uniform. Does this example pass the the test of uniformity? Is it uniform? Is it the same in all cases? So, think about this verse. I'm going to get some participation from you right here. Let's just use this verse right here Mark 16, 15. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. So, Jesus gives a commandment. This is a direct statement. You go and you preach the gospel. What kind of examples do we find in our Bibles of disciples, Christians, obeying this commandment? Just raise your hand if you can think of one. Brother Mitch, yes, sir? Acts 1 and verse verse 8. The scripture says there, I like, I love that verse. In fact, let me just go to it and read it real quick because I love that verse. I think it's a good thesis for the book of Acts. I think it's a really good one. And in Acts 1 and in verse number 8. The Bible says, Jesus says, you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So we see the gospel's going to start in Jerusalem and then Judea. Don't need a ship for that. Don't need a ship for that. Don't need a ship to go to Samaria. You're mostly going to be doing what? Going to those places. As Jesus says, you start in Jerusalem, Judea. What are you, usually, what are you going to be using mainly? going to be walking, right? You may have a camel or something, but you ain't going to be needing a ship. That's a good one, Mitch. Uh, Brother Greg, hey, Brother Greg, I didn't know you was back from, I didn't see you back, you're in a different spot. Go ahead, sir. Uh, In Acts the 8th chapter, verse 4, uh, Christians preached the word because they were scattered for persecution, so not only were they walking, they were running away from persecution. That's what I had put in my notes. That stood out to me. So in Acts 80 verse 4, because of persecution at the hands of Saul of Tarsus, we got the Christians fleeing. They're leaving Jerusalem and they're going in a hurry. In fact, Philip goes to Samaria and he's not taking a ship to Samaria. So you got Christians on foot here, leaving Jerusalem. That's a great point. Brother Gary. Yes, sir. Yes. And I'm not sure exactly how Peter got there, but I would suspect, because I've made that journey myself, actually, from Caesarea near Joppa to Jerusalem, that he's probably going on foot as well. Yeah, because you're not going to need a ship for that either. You're still in the same general area in Israel. So there's another example. Anyone else got one? Any other example? Yes, Brother Mike. So you got Paul going to Cyprus. Well, how is he getting there by? Taking a ship. I can remember a man named Philip preaching the gospel to a eunuch, but he was in something very interesting. We didn't mention what he was in. He's in a chariot. Paul often, when he goes to cities, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Berea, and the first thing he does is he, is he finds himself up. Uh, but when he goes to Philippi, there is no synagogue. Paul's, uh oh, oh, I got to. What about my example of a synagogue in every place? Instead, he finds some women by a, it's different all over the place. It's different all over the place. You got Christians traveling on foot from Jerusalem to Samaria while fleeing persecution. You got Christians in chariots. You got Paul on his missionary journeys going by foot and by ship. Paul actually didn't just go by ship on his missionary journeys. He traveled by foot in many cases. You got Paul going into the synagogue, you got Paul going to a river, riverside to preach to women. It's different all over the place. Lisa, go ahead, ma'am. <laughs> I didn't think of that one. That's a, re- that's a really good one. So in addition to... I'm about to say it right now, sir, because it's really good. It's really good. So in addition to him going to the riverbed to preach in the synagogue, Lisa said... The prison. Remember the prison in Philippi when Paul's preached to the who? The jailer. To the jailer. That's a really good one. Uh, Yes, Don and then Ryan after that. Don brings up how he, Don brings up for those in the back, how Paul as a prisoner is preaching as he's going from place to place, which is interesting because he's preaching to the Sanhedrin. He's preaching also under house arrest. That's how the book of Acts ends. with Paul, not in a synagogue or not by a river, but under house arrest, and people are coming to him all day. He's preaching from the morning to the evening. How would you love to be in a Bible study with the apostle Paul? And he's just preaching all day. But the Bible says there that as these people are coming to Paul and he's preaching, some are listening and some are rejecting it. Isn't that pretty much how it is today? And I like that because it shows me we can't force people to obey. You know, sometimes churches are like, well, we got to get this number of baptisms every year for us to be successful. No, we got to preach the gospel to be successful. That shows success doing the work. God gives the God gives the increase, not us. We don't get an increase. Yes, sir, Brother Mitch. Yes. No, please. <laughs> oh, see, that's why he's smarter than me. You see why? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good one. I didn't even think of that one. So, so you got Paul singing in the prison, and if, and if that's uh, a buying example, that's the only place we can sing. It's prison. That's a really good one. I didn't even think of that. That's, that's fantastic. Ryan had his hand up, and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to get you, Tony. Go ahead, Ryan. So how did uh, after, what, you that? Yeah. You know the answer to that? I'm going to tell you. I don't have a clue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a clue. I just know the Spirit got him there some kind of— I mean, what I remember growing up as a kid, seeing that, I thought it was like teleporting, like, you know? That's why I pictured it. It doesn't matter. The text doesn't tell us. It just says the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, he's out of the picture. He's done his work, and the focus is the eunuch rejoicing. I heard a good joke about this. It talked about a younger preacher who didn't stay to his outline. He just starts preaching. He tells the people, yeah, the eunuch, he was so happy that he went home to his wife and his kids. That's a problem. Stay to the script, young man. Stay to the script. Uh, Brother Tony, yes, sir. We're going to get to that. I think you're on the right path. You're on the right path, Tony. We're going to get to that. That's good. Okay. so does anybody else have comments about uniformity? Because here's the point I'm trying to make with this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. There is no right example to go and preach the gospel because there are many different examples. There's no just one one. There's not just one we're limited to. That's the point I'm trying to make. There are many different examples. And so that's how we know that Paul going by ship is not a buying example because over here we got Christians doing it by a chariot. And over here we got Christians walking. And over here we got them in a synagogue. And over here we got them here at a riverbed. They're all over the place. It's not uniform. That's, that, that's the point I'm making. But here's a third question. Can the example be applied in all cases? Can it be applied in all cases? The technical term for this is does it, does it fall within the rule of universality, universality, is it universal? Can can Christians here do the example just like Christians over there? Can Christians in Africa do the example in the same way that the Christians in Phoenix can? All right? So let's look at this then. Look at Acts chapter eight, to give you an example of this please. And Acts eight, because When it comes to the Lord's Supper, we have brethren in Africa right now. Well, not now. It's way later in the day for them. But at this time or or on the first day of the week, they took the Lord's Supper. They could do that in Africa. Just like what? We can too. That's a universal. Christians from all, all over the world can do that. But look at this. Acts 8 and verse 1. And Brother Greg brought this up. In fact, Greg, would you mind helping me, sir? Could, could you just read again uh, verses one down uh, to verse number five? Would you mind, Brother Greg, reading Acts 8? Because you got a nice, nice, loud voice there. Acts 8, 1 through 5, please. City of Samaria and proclaim to them the so here we have an example of Christians. Thank you, Brother Greg. We have an example of Christians preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But where are they starting from? What city are they starting from in the text? So do we have to also start from Jerusalem, too? They started from Jerusalem. See, that example can't be applied in all cases. That can't be applied to us because we live in Phoenix. (laughs) And that can't be applied to the brethren in Sierra Leone because they're in Sierra Leone. Can't be applied to the brethren in in Tucson. That can't be a binding example because Christians, when it comes to preaching the gospel, they can only begin from where they live. Does that make sense? You can only start from where you live. We don't live in Jerusalem. Now, I've been to Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. It's an amazing place. but I don't live in Jerusalem. I live here near you. I live in Chandler. I worship with a group of Christians in Phoenix. We live in the valley. And so disciples can only begin preaching the gospel from where they are from. That's the point there. To be a binding example, an example must be universal. Every Christian must be able to do that in all cases, no matter where they are. It doesn't work that way when it comes to starting from Jerusalem, according to Acts 8 and verse 4. Do you see that? I'm trying to get us to think about some things that maybe we hadn't thought about before. So things we got to consider has to be applied in every case. You know, even in Bible times, even in Bible times, many of the disciples that live in Jerusalem, right? I mean, what's some of the places where Christians lived in Bible times? That's Thessalonica, Corinth, Berea, uh, Antioch, right? Crete, Rome. They're all over the place, even in the Bible. They don't all live in Jerusalem. So that can't be a buying example because it can't be applied in every case. That's the point. Now, one more real quick, and then we'll pick up with this on Wednesday, Lord willing. Okay. One more. Does the example have a material connection to the thing at hand? Some cases contain things that are merely incidental to the matter. Let me give you an example. Look at Acts chapter 20. This is the one we really like to go to for our binding example. and example. And, and, and I'm with that. I mean, I think this is a binding example of when to take the Lord's Supper. I, mean, I think that's clear, but there's a reason why that is. But let's look at this a little bit in Acts 20, beginning in verse seven, Acts 20, verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And He prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting, sitting on a sill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. And he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. When he had got back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a, a, a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and he was greatly confident. There's a lot going on in those verses. And so often we just focus on the Lord's supper part. But there's a lot, a lot going on in those verses. It's, it's just I wish I could like. Get like a video of that worship assembly. That's an amazing worship assembly. So what is the main thing, though? What's the main thing under consideration in that text? The main thing that Luke wants us to understand is going on there. They are together doing what? Yeah, they're there worshiping. And really, the main thing, according to verse seven, is the Lord's Supper, breaking bread. That's why Paul delayed his journey. That's why he delayed it a few days, because he wanted to be with the Christians to take the Lord's Supper. Now, you got some Christians who say, well, no, I can just take it at home. It's all good. Well, if that was the case, why couldn't Paul just say, I just take it on the ship with Luke and we keep it moving? No, Paul says, I want to do it in an assembly. The Lord's Supper is designed to get us to remember the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus But it's designed to get us to do that together. We miss that so often. It's not some checklist thing that "Oh, I did. I feel good about myself. I did it today. No, we got to do it here. Because we are proclaiming together. We believe this stuff. It's a time of fellowship. You want a real fellowship hall? You're in it right now. Spiritual fellowship. Remembering the Lord's Supper. And so Paul delayed his journey on purpose for that reason. So what's connected to the Lord's Supper in the text? In the text, what's connected to the Lord's Supper? Lance, say that louder, please, sir. It's the when, the first day of the week. Lance said the first day of the week. That is what's connected to the Lord's Supper in the text. The day. And that's the only thing connected to the Lord's Supper. The many lamps, that has no material connection to the Lord's Supper. The upper room has no material connection to the Lord's Supper. Someone falling asleep in church, that preacher still got to deal with today, <laughs> has no material connection to the Lord's Supper. Someone dying in church, and if that's a buying example, who wants to raise their hand and do that one today? That has no material connection to the Lord's Supper. A miracle being performed in church, that has no material connection to the Lord's Supper. The only reason those things are mentioned, the many lamps, the upper room, someone falling asleep, someone dying, a miracle. The only reason that stuff is mentioned is to emphasize what happened to Eutychus. It's to let you know the circumstance surrounding his death. This man is tired. He's probably a slave, because most people are slaves at this time. He's been working all day. This is a night assembly. This is a night, this is night church. This is church at night. And this man is dog tired. And he is so tired, he falls asleep. I don't think it's because he was playing Pokemon all night the night before. This man has been working. He's a slave. And he falls asleep in church. And Luke is letting us know the circumstances surrounding that. That's why you got the lamps mentioned and the upper room and the miracle. All that is designed to talk about what happened to him. But it has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. It has no material connection. It's all incidental to what happens with the Lord's Supper. So that's why that's not binding. But the Lord's Supper part is because that's the thing Luke is emphasizing about the act of worship in the text. Okay. now I'm going to stop right there because I know there's a lot more we can say about this. We're going to keep this going on Wednesday. And I want to show you how we use this this also in our daily lives. We're going to talk about that a little bit also. So we'll pause right there. I want to give you a chance to get up and move around a little bit. We'll come back together in a few minutes to worship. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it.